Is COVID snake venom? I'm going to give you my view of a documentary called Watch the Water. Come on, let's go take a look. Hello, everyone. Dr. Chris Martinson here with another episode for you. Listen, uh, we have to talk about this because I got a lot of you sending in this particular piece of work to me. So we're going to take a look at it. And uh, well, let's just dive right in because um, this is pretty astonishing. So this episode, COVID, is it snake venom? Hmm. We're going to take a look. That's the theory. And by the way, here's the... Lots of attention on this documentary. Uh, so we'll call that a documentary, I guess. Carol said, watch this video. Spammed me with it. Sent me a lot of, <laughs> thanks, Carol. A lot of people sent this, though. Said, watch the water. Why do symptoms of snake venom poisoning seem to match COVID? Interesting hypothesis. We're going to take this apart and look at it very, very carefully because extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. But most importantly, I love science. I care about science. I'm going to show you how I think and how I put stuff together so that you can see, hopefully, for yourself, whether you can trust uh, this or not. Because the whole point of everything here is to make sure that we are trusting ourselves. I know, I know, I know, I know, I know. There's a lot of people out there who want us to just trust the federal government. I, I get it, but I really don't. Because um, I don't trust people in positions of authority who got there without necessarily being the right people for the job or having proved themselves in any other sorts of ways. It's kind of like, you know, the Federal Reserve. It's entirely composed of people who've never had a job practically. I mean, practically entirely composed. Most of them have never had a job, and they're in charge of the whole economy. They've never had a PL. They haven't worried about employees. It's kind of weird, right? So this is really important that we don't take anybody's word the federal government, me, these people we're about to look at, I want you to trust yourself. If something doesn't seem right, it isn't. And by the way, there's some things about this documentary that I think could be quite damaging to the people who pick up the storyline and run with it. And by damaging, I mean socially damaging, credibility damaging, things like that. So let's go take a look. RFK Jr. said, while it's true... There is some overlap between the effects of poisonous peptides present in some snake venom and those of SARS-CoV-2 spike protein. Claiming COVID is ultimately derived from snake venom is a poorly substantiated hypothesis. It's being, I think, kind in this case. So here's the documentary, The Reason I Care. I mean, it's, the reason I care is because it has practically 3 million views, despite just being published on April 11th. So that's a very successful uh, piece of work right there. There's the link for it down below. Of course, we always put the links down in the show notes down below so you can click stuff, follow it yourself. This is on Rumble. Obviously, this is on the Stu Peters network that he has a channel over there on Rumble. I say obviously because it's not going to be on YouTube. And by the way, um, I'm not going to actually be playing clips from this. I'm, I actually took the time to transcribe word for word parts of this this show because I didn't want to run afoul of any copyright or anything like that. I want to make sure that this comes out and doesn't get taken down. Uh, so at any rate, live world premiere on April 11th, 3 million views already. What are the claims? Now, here's the thing. This Dr. Brian Artis, uh, A-R-D-I-S, it starts really strong because he's been a big 
critic of remdesivir. I'm a big critic of remdesivir. The initial studies for it, they changed the endpoints to try and find something that sort of looked like it worked. If you squint it at it for long enough, it doesn't work. In fact, good evidence to suggest that when you give remdesivir to severely ill people, you harm them, not help them. So he starts out strong with that, and, and I totally disagree with giving remdesivir as well to children, infants even, which is now what it's been approved for. So it starts strong, okay? Now, here's the things that get, makes things like this difficult is when truth and fiction sort of get merged together. If that ever happens, it gets harder and harder to separate those two things. That's why I work so hard to bring you verifiable facts. If they change, hey, I'll change too. Okay, so let's dive right in then. Right here, uh, statement one at about the 18-minute mark, Dr. Artis says, quote, I wanted to know, what is antivenom? I found out that most antivenoms are monoclonal antibodies or polyclonal antibodies. I realized all of a sudden that monoclonal antibodies are antivenom. The federal government doesn't want us using antivenom. Why are they bashing antivenom? And why are we finding out that antivenom works against COVID? Is it not a virus? Is it venom? End quote. All right, a lot to unpack here. Uh, first, there's a little bit of a logical fallacy here that, that's kind of like says, well, most antivenoms are monoclonal antibodies, and therefore, all monoclonal antibodies are antivenom. No, not how it works, not even close. That's kind of like saying tires are round, oranges are round, therefore, oranges are tires. That would also be a logical fallacy. So let's unpack this so we can understand this a little bit better. What is an antibody? An antibody is a protein, okay? It is a blood protein, circulates around in your body. It can be in your lymph as well, but it's, you know, you find it in the blood a lot. It's uh, produced in response to and counteracting a specific antigen. Now, what's an antigen? An antigen is just something that's in your body that shouldn't be there, and your body recognizes it as not self. It could be anything, but the way that your body recognizes self from non-self is by the, the shape, by the 3D surface conformational shape of this thing. So I think we could uh, imagine that like a golf ball has a very different shape from, say, um, a dragon fruit. But your body would make an antibody against each one of those if it had dragon fruit or a golf ball circulating inside. It wasn't supposed to be there. That's what an antibody is. Over here, let me get my drawing tool out so we can have this conversation together. Um, an antibody looks like this. They look like little Y-shaped things. This is the part out here that binds the antigen, the thing. And it has uh, these four chains, really, these two big long ones and then these two little short ones here. It's a very complex protein, and it's shaped like a Y but in, in these stylized things. But actually, it's a very, it looks like a, this is a lock and key model. So an antibody binds onto something because it has exactly the opposite shape of the thing it's trying to attach to, and even the opposite charges. So if there's a plus charge over here, there's a minus charge on here, the, just the right spot grabs it, grabs it nice and tight. And because of that, it blocks it. It just literally, it's just gumming it up. Okay, so, you know, these show a bunch of antibodies going against a, a virus protein. All right, a virus in all its surface proteins. Now, let's see here, antivenom. Some are monoclonal, but actually most are polyclonal still. And so here in yellow, in quote, in the late 19th century, snake antivenoms were first developed by raising hyperimmune serum 
in animals, such as horses, against snake venoms. Hyperimmune serum was then purified to produce whole immunoglobulin, IgG, antivenoms. IgG was then fractionated to produce the FAB and the FAB2 antivenoms to reduce adverse reactions and increase efficacy. Current commercial antivenoms are polyclonal mixtures of antibodies or their fractions raised against all toxin antigens and venoms, irrespective of clinical importance. Some, some fully human monoclonal antibodies are now in use as well, but some. Honestly, so when you get snake venom, snake venom isn't a thing. It's not like all little square red Legos of this shape and size. When you get a, a venom from a snake, there's all kinds of stuff in there. There's all sorts of different components. There's lots of different proteins and lots of different chemicals in there. And so it's a mixture. And if you got bit by a snake, you'd want to be able to fight off all of those different things that are in the venom. And so that's why they take a horse and they'll give it a little bit of venom, not enough to kill it, obviously. And they give it that little bit of venom, which is this very rich poly mixture of all sorts of different things, poly meaning many, then you would get a polyclonal antibody response because the horse is busy making antibodies against everything it sees from that antivenom. So when you say all, when he says this, I realized all of a sudden that monoclonal antibodies are antivenom. That's actually a logical error. and It displays a, a fairly strong misunderstanding of this whole process. So you can't just say because some antivenoms are monoclonal antibodies, therefore all monoclonal antibodies must be antivenoms. It's not even remotely how it works. So we have here faulty logic. Some antivenoms are monoclonal antibodies. Some anti-SARS-2 treatments are monoclonal antibodies. Therefore, artist concludes, COVID is being treated with antivenoms. And this is proof that COVID's mechanism of harm is caused by snake venom. Okay, that okay, can't, that, that's logically, doesn't even hang together even lightly. So let's look here. Um, these are some anti-COVID antibodies that are out there right now. They come in all sorts of different uh, shapes and configurations going against very different things. So each one of these is a different monoclonal antibody that is produced against different portions of the overall proteins on the outside of the SARS to virus. So here we see the RBD, which is a receptor binding domain or the N-terminal domain here. Remember I said lock and key, like there's, it's, you know, the antibodies are, are fitted against a shape. Well, those are 3D conformational shapes. You see all those blobby things down at the bottom there. They show the diff, what that shape looked like. And for a monoclonal antibody to be effective, it has to precisely mirror image, negatively match in terms of topography, that outer structure. Really complicated. I can't even believe nature came up with this in the first place. It's magic. However, if you had one of these monoclonal antibodies right here that was directed against, say, the receptor binding motif, that antibody right there, number 331, if that was, say, directed against this spot right here, it wouldn't be able to recognize this spot. It wouldn't bind here. Wouldn't bind here. Wouldn't bind here, wouldn't bind here, wouldn't bind anywhere else. It only is going to bind to that one spot because that's where the lock and key fit perfectly. So uh, there are lots and lots and lots of different monoclonal antibodies. And by mono, we mean singular. A monoclonal antibody only has one version. So if we produced all of these antibodies, we would be producing a polyclonal 
antibody response. Poly, many, many different clones. Monoclonal, by, by contrast, would be just one of these. And we would just be producing one of these things, like say this 331 that we looked at right here. You would get a lot of that. It would be mono, singular, clonal, single clone, monoclonal. If you had a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot of that monoclonal, then you would be having giving monoclonal. So that's actually what happened when people were getting antibodies at the hospital against COVID. They were getting some version of a monoclonal antibody, and they each would have a different trade name, a different um, uh, drug name. So, uh, sovitramab or something like that, that would be a monoclonal, and it would be directed against one of these things right here. Now, the chance that this monoclonal would both detect one portion of the spike protein and any given portion of a snake venom is pretty much zero. Monoclonal antibodies are highly specific for one thing. That's that's what they do. All right. Um, hey, you know what? We're going to be right back. I have uh, very fortunate to have sponsors of this program. Today, we're going to hear from today's sponsor, Secure, and we'll be right back after this one-minute message. Thanks. And now a word from the sponsor of today's program, Secure, spelled S-E-K-U-R. Secure is a private and secure instant messaging and email service. All communication is held securely in Swiss servers without using any of the big tech platforms. Listen, in today's day and age, your email or messages or even bank information can easily be intercepted by bad actors. Your private information, pictures, chat, and email are consistently mined and sold by big tech. Look, when you use a free product, you are the product. Secure never minds your data and never asks for your phone number. You can easily and securely communicate with both secure users and non-secure users alike, allowing you to send completely secure emails to your doctor, your banker, your lawyer, or anybody else. You can even set a time to destruct the message. Even your internet provider can't peek in on your emails. Secure is your solution to stop the constant theft of your digital identity, and it costs only $5 a month for the messenger or $10 per month for the messenger and email package. Go to secure.com and take back your privacy today. That's S-E-K-U-R.com. Peak Insiders get 25% off, or if you're not an insider, the promo code PEAK15 gets you a limited time 15% off. All right, welcome back to the program. Let's carry on and uh, go here. So polyclonals, polyclonal antibodies are a mixture of monoclonals. That's all it is. So when we say polyclonal, again, it's just a mixture. Hey, here they're producing polyclonals in a goat. So an animal, such as a goat or rabbit, injected with an immunogen plus an adjuvant, which an adjuvant is just something that makes your immune system go, whoa, invaders, fires it up, gets a little little, little spunky and goes out and, and attacks. Uh, then they give booster injections every few weeks, and then they take the blood out, and then they separate out the plasma component, which has all of the antibodies in it. And that serum, and then uh, look, this is supposed to look, these are polyclonals. So you got a pinkish one, a blue one, a black one, a brown one, etc. Um, so that's what a polyclonal is. Now let's return back to this. Artists at minute 19 and 18 seconds, quote, said, I'm sitting there realizing that monoclonal antibodies are antivenoms. And I immediately revert back to, in my own head, uh, I'm not trusting anything the NIH, FDA, or CDC says. 
is our federal health agencies, are they recommending monoclonal antibodies for COVID-19? No, they're not. They've been bad-mouthing monoclonal antibodies this whole time. Okay, uh, end quote. So first, when he says, I'm sitting there realizing that monoclonal antibodies are antivenoms, right before this, he said he went online and did some research. I'm worried that this is going to be used as an example of, you know, do your own research. See how it goes wrong. See how it goes, goes bad for you. Um, not if you do it right. If you do your own research, it's actually pretty powerful uh, and works out really, really well. And then there's this idea of um, saying, no, they're not. They've been bad-mouthing monoclonal antibodies this whole time. Actually, antibodies' use in treating COVID has got a long history. And the first thing that we should note is that they tried a polyclonal mixture. This is called convalescent plasma. Somebody's had COVID. They've recovered. They take their plasma, just like this, just um, take this one, uh, just take the goat out. And imagine it's a human, and the human's been exposed to COVID, do the same thing, same process. Pull the blood out, fractionate it, take the serum or the plasma, and then you have to take that polyclonal, that's called convalescent plasma in this case, if this goat was a human and the human had had COVID. That convalescent plasma, they tried that, that didn't work that well. It really didn't have that strong of a track record. Don't know why. But then various monoclonal antibodies came along, and they were frontline therapy for the alpha, the beta, the delta, I'm not sure about the gamma variants, but all of those, they absolutely worked really, really well. So let's let's look at this um, very quickly. And uh, so lately, though, they've pulled several of those monoclonals off saying, listen, they're very, very expensive. But they said here, uh, and by the way, I, I really don't, I'm, I'm with Dr. Artis on this. I, I don't trust the NIH COVID treatment guideline panel. <laughs> I just I just don't. However, uh, they say here an, an independent panel of national experts recently recommended against the use of bomlanivimab and atezivimab, mark administered together, and Regencove, um, kassirivimab, and indevimab uh, because of markedly reduced activity against the Omicron variant and because real-time testing to identify rare non-Omicron variants is not routinely available. So if you could test somebody and you find out they didn't have Omicron, they had alpha, alpha, beta, delta, you would still give these things to them because they did work. Now, against Omicron, they don't work. Why not? Because the spike protein of Omicron is so radically different that if you had an antibody here that was a monoclonal that was directed against a very specific shape on alpha, beta, gamma, delta, it probably isn't going to work against Omicron because Omicron is that different. Again, my favorite hypothesis, Omicron is not a natural variant. It too came from a lab, possibly released on purpose in a white hat operation. That's my most favorite um, hope that, that there's somebody good out there still trying to help. But it's very clear that Omicron has nothing. Its spike protein is so radically different that it kind of makes sense. I'm not surprised, I should say. Not that it makes sense, but I'm, I'm not surprised. To find out that monoclonal antibodies directed against the legacy COVID variants really doesn't work against the Omicron variants. So that's what they found. And they said, well, this stuff really isn't working. Markedly reduced activity against the Omicron variant. So that's what they're saying. And so they just pulled them. However, 
it is a fact that amonoclonal is still recommended. So I just pulled the NIH uh, COVID treatment guidelines down just to be sure about this. Pulled this yesterday on 418. Today's 419. They say here in their summary recommendations, uh, anti-SARS-CoV-2 monoclonal antibodies for the treatment of COVID-19. And they are still recommending solrovimab. Uh, administered as soon as possible. This stuff, Solrovimab, still seems to work against Omicron, against all the other variants. It works. However, they yanked these other ones for not working. Why? Because all we have is Omicron. That baby took off, went through, bumped out, nudged out all the other variants. And so really, this is an Omicron nation. It's an Omicron world now. It took over. Um, And so they are still recommending at least um, Solrovimab. Now, how does that contrast with this? No, they're not. They've been bad-mouthing monoclonal antibodies this whole time. Well, no, that's not actually true. Um, so we have a second logical faulty thing. The government has blocked Baz. Look at that. Look at that typo right there. I hate those things. Um, so it says here uh, the government has much better blocked some effective treatments. That's true. That's absolutely true. That's the truth part. It gets blended now with the part that's not true, which is, therefore, everything the government blocks must be an effective treatment. Mm, That's carrying it just a little bit too far. And in this case, it's actually wrong. No, they have not been bad-mouthing monoclonal antibodies. In fact, those were frontline treatment as long as we had the earlier variants. Now, could we develop new monoclonal antibodies against Omicron. Absolutely. Are we? Doubt it. Um, Because, well, let's just be honest, Omicron, for most people, it's basically a cold. Uh, And so we do have other treatments for it. So I don't know that anybody's going to make monoclonals. Uh, Probably somebody will. But right now, we don't have them. Solrovimab still seems to work, kind of, because it probably targets a part of the spike protein that's common and hasn't changed all that much between SARS-CoV-2, Alpha, Beta, Gamma, Gamma, Delta, and um, the Omicron. All right, carrying on. Uh, Let's go here. Artist then goes on at about minute 22, 23, quote, if it's true that COVID could actually be snake venom, and how I got there was they don't support the use of antivenom called monoclonal antibodies because they work. The easiest way to figure that out is, has that been fact-checked? And I wanted to know, was there ever any mention that the source could have been a snake? So the argument he's making here, end quote, uh, the argument he's making here is that the fact checkers kept saying, no, it wasn't snakes. So there must have been some truth to that. And so therefore, this is the right place to look. So this is the logical argument of saying, because somebody doesn't want me looking somewhere, I think I should look there. Now, I agree with that. It goes too far to say, because somebody doesn't want me to look somewhere, That must be the truth over there. My superpower is I I can tell non-truth. I can detect BS like that. I don't know what the truth is. Um, It's ever-changing. The older I get, the less I know, for sure. Uh, So uh, it's not, I don't, this is a very strong declarative sort of a jump to make. I can't quite follow it all the way there. Um, But let's go into this fact-checking around snakes in all of that, minute 2223 in this documentary, Watch the Water, artist says, quote, in January 2020, the scientists inside of China said, this can't be from these bats because these bats hibernate in the winter. 
And when they did genetic sequences from the antibodies in the people who were sick in Wuhan, they found that their genetic sequence was not like most bats. They were most like two snakes, proteins from the Chinese crate and the king cobra, end quote. <clears throat> All right. Again, lots to unpack uh, in just a few sentences here. So first up, when, when China said this can't be from these bats because these bats hibernate in winter, it's true, but, but snakes kind of hibernate in winter too, uh, as well, it doesn't really matter if the bats hibernate or not if you're monkeying around with this virus in a lab, which 99.9% certainty, this virus came from a lab. So the hibernating thing is not a strong argument to make here. But here's where it really goes off the rails when he said, and when they did genetic sequences from the antibodies in the people. I hope this is just a misspeak. This is why we tape things usually so you can re-say them again if you have to. The antibodies don't have genetic sequences. Antibodies are proteins. Antibodies are strings of amino acids. They don't have a genetic sequence. Uh, so he might have meant the amino acid sequence from the antibody. I'm not clear what this means. Antibodies are directed against a protein. They are not, antibodies aren't, aren't the deadly things themselves. The antibodies just clean up the deadly things. Sometimes I can go off the rails, but I mean 99% of the time. Okay, I don't even know what to do with this sentence. Genetic sequences from the antibodies in the people. A genetic sequence is a piece of RNA or DNA. Deoxyribonucleic acid, um, and that's a genetic sequence. A protein is made up of things like amino acids, like glycine, arginine, leucine, isoleucine, phenylalanine, right? So at any rate, uh, and then they said uh, they found that their genetic sequence was not like most like bats. They were most like two snakes, proteins from the Chinese crate and the king cobra. Now that's pretty incendiary stuff evokes really nice um uh cobras and crates uh, those are badass things so so let's here's how i want to talk about this the issues of this is first antibodies don't have genetic sequence that's one two genetic sequences of covid virus is is not like those from snakes we have to go back to the genetics to tell how things are related and and three no i i, I can't find any proteins in sars 2 that are most like those from crates. So let's talk about this a bit. First, the truth. Remember the truth that gets mushed with the non-truth. The truth is that drug companies, they are very interested in venoms. You know why? Not because they want to kill us necessarily, but because those venoms have extraordinarily potent biological activity. That's what a drug is. A drug is something that modulates your biological activity. If you don't want to have pain, you want something that knocks out pain receptors. If you want to stop inflammation, you want something that impacts your your immune system and your inflammatory systems so a lot of effort has gone into so by the way nature has been busy figuring this stuff out for a long time right like you know penicillin is from a bacterium that figured out uh, from it sorry from a mold that figured out how to inhibit bacterial growth because those two have been in competition for a billion years probably right and so they've worked out some really cool molecular if not chemical means of interacting with each other. It's a, all of life is chemistry. So um, snakes have figured out and snails like the Kona snail and and, and uh, maybe the blue ringed octopus. There's lots of nature has figured out sort of a poisonous approach to things 
to help itself eat and survive and or defend itself, right? So anyway, lots of successful drugs out there that are based on, um, and by the way, these are peptide drugs, meaning the little strings of, of amino acids. Peptide drugs have the roots in venom. So, okay, not too surprisingly. Now, here, here's where I'm going to just go off. I just like, I have to explain this because I like, I need this kind of context to make sense of the world. So hopefully this works for you too. Uh, sickle cell anemia, you've probably heard, is a, is a condition uh, where there is a genetic defect in the coding for the peptide, for the protein, for uh, hemoglobin. Now, if you have the correct form of hemoglobin, your blood cells look like this. And if you have the wrong form, it looks like this. They look like sickles, little curved things under microscopes back in the day. So they called it sickle cell anemia. And that happens because in the genetic code, there is one, this is um, the DNA sequence is this one right here. And here's the one that is for sickle cell anemia. And what happens is this GAG ends up coding for glutamic acid. Uh-oh, it got turned into a valine because the, the two strings got flipped or inverted. Um, so you see it went CTC and then GAG. Now it goes CAC, GTG. So the T and the A got flipped. That's it. One nucleic acid flip. And now it codes for a whole new amino acid, but just one, just one. There's lots and lots and lots of amino acids in hemoglobin. I don't know, how, a few hundred, I forget how many, but it's, it's, quite a, it's quite a long string, over 100 for sure, I think. It's a lot. But just that one change, one amino acid got changed and the protein doesn't work right anymore. So it's very rare that you can take a protein with a biological activity and start fiddling with its amino acid composition without fiddling with how it actually operates. Okay, so here's where this gets um, kind of important. These are your amino acids. There's 20 of them. They're broken down into these different colors. The blues up top, these are negatively charged. So think of like um, negatively and positively charged would be like north and south on a magnet. So if you have two negatively charged ones near each other, the D and the E, the uh, aspartic acid and glutamic acid, they're going to resist, they're going to push apart from each other. And likewise, if there's a plus there, they're going to come together really strongly. Then there's uncharged polar. They don't have a charge, but they're still polar. And then there's these nonpolars ones down here in the green. All right. The point being here, if you're going to do a substitution, though, if you're going to swap one amino acid for another, oftentimes you get a little more success if you swap out a nonpolar for another nonpolar. But swapping out a positive for a negative really is going to change this overall thing. So we look here. We went from a glutamic acid to a valine. A glutamic acid means it went from a negatively charged in, in sickle cell anemia to a nonpolar. So that was all it took. You took a nonpolar, which means it's it's just, you know, it's it doesn't have any plus or minus charge, and it's not really going to have one even in the presence of water. It's just kind of a neutral thing. And we took one of those and swapped it out for something that was polar um, and was negatively charged. So what happens when we took one amino acid and flopped it out? Well, you went from normal, healthy, functioning hemoglobin to sickle cell anemia. And because the protein doesn't really quite work right anymore. Okay. All right. So trust me, I'm going somewhere with this. So snake venom, 
these amino acids. They're very, high, very, very highly conserved. So here we've got um, things in, we've got all these different cobras and crates and all these different types of, um, of snakes down here. And look at the sequence alignment. Those are amino acids. K, R, F, K, K, F, F, K, K. Look at the sequence alignment. See how highly conserved this is? Anywhere where you see constant color going up and down, that means you don't have to read too carefully. Every single one of those amino acids has been highly conserved, meaning all the snakes kind of stumbled on this solution, which is called convergent evolution. Or there was one proto-snake long time ago that worked it out and then passed that on to all these different snake lineages. That's... Um, uh, parallel evolution. So whatever, uh, either it was a, a common forebear way in the past that worked it out or whether they all stumbled on, on their own uh, over time through convergent evolution. The point is that look at how highly conserved, meaning there's not a lot of swap outs in this particular story. Very, very few. Mainly it's that one sequence with all the reds and the blues and the greens and the yellow stripes. That just says that if you want a protein to most highly resemble something, it's got to look a lot like this. This is just one peptide sequence, but just showing exactly how close it is. So, all right, now let's look. So here is the S1 protein in COVID, and it has this amino acid sequence, STFKCYGVSP, blah, 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 blah. And here's a neurotoxin that is said, hey, kind of could look like it. This S is the same. This CY is the same. This S is the same here. And this ND is the same here. But look at the things that aren't the same. We have an F here that got turned into a Y. We got a K that got turned into an F and so on. And as you read through this, and here's a second sequence in COVID right here. And here is another neurotoxin that has said kind of looks like it. But now I've taken the time to show you all the positively charged amino acids are now color-coded with red. The negatively charged are color-coded with blue. And then uncharged polar is yellow and nonpolar is green. Let me remove those. So you can clearly see that even though eh, you squint at this, you can see there's not a lot of conservation between S1 protein 370 starting at the 375 position to 390 and the neurotoxin going from position 41 to 56. Eh, there's a little, the S, the CY, the S, the ND, eh. but in between, there's a lot of very highly different amino acids. So listen, I could look at this and say, you know, okay, interesting theory, but I'm going to want to see the biological activity. I'm going to want to see you take those peptides out, put them into an animal or a cell model and show that they still have, even though they've got all these scrambled amino acids, I want to see that they still work. That's called doing your own research. That's what it should look like. You say, wow, I think there's a neurotoxin in there. That's cool. Grab the sequence. Look at it. Make some decisions about what you think that's going to mean. And then go and see if you can find any evidence to support that hypothesis. The inestimable Jicky Leaks uh, over there, which is um, on, uh, on Twitter. And by the way, Jicky has to keep coming back under different names because Twitter uh, keeps banning this account. Too much good information coming out for uh, Twitter's own, own benefit and likes. Uh, so here is that sequence that we see, and it's this red part in here. It's kind of buried to me. It's kind of inside the spike protein. If you want something to bind to and interact with the outer world, it really ought to be out here where these really bizarre 
uh, GP120 proteins from HIV are located all around the outside. And here's the furin cleavage site. Way on the outside here, where, where, where it can be have biological activity. If something's buried, well, then it's not seen in there. And so I'm a little concerned that this is, you know, for the snake hypothesis, this sequence, which is, you know, said to be homologous or kind of like snakes, it's buried. But by the way, it isn't most like. Remember, um, that's what Artis was saying here. It is most like snakes. He said, the, you know, the genetic sequence was not like bats. They were most like two snakes, proteins from the Chinese crate and the king cobra. I look at this and I have to squint at it and go, mm, most like I'm not even sure it's anything like at this stage. I'll need more evidence. Now, here's the truth part again. It's kind of cool. There's some intriguing speculation. It's possible that small neurotoxin peptides, <coughs> excuse me, are expressed during SARS-CoV-2 infection. It's possible. And so this is actually kind of a cool idea. I like this part in yellow, quote, herein we hypothesize that inside the open reading frame region of the spike glycoprotein, the RNA polymerase can translate small neurotoxic peptides by means of a jumping mechanism. So it's just cranking out little fragments of, of peptides instead of the whole spike protein. Cool idea. Uh, that That's actually an interesting toxicological uh, pathogenesis mechanism. I'm intrigued. I want to know more. Acting as uh, nicotinic acetylcholine receptor antagonists, these small peptides, conotoxins, could be the explanation for the extrapulmonary clinical manifestations. So they're like, eh, you know, it, it could be. Um, if several factors might induce the expression of these small peptides, including microbiota. So this could have something to do with the gut biome. It's a cool idea. It's an idea. It's a hypothesis. They've got some data. It's kind of cool. Um, it's mostly modeling. But here again, you can see where they're trying to line these up with. On top in the blue, we're looking at the neurotoxin um, as compared to uh, in black down below what we see in COVID. So uh, this is the Chinese cobra. So this is where you see stuff. But every time you see a black line coming down, this is where you, there's an amino acid alignment, the black line. Everything else is a mismatch. So again, these are the wrong amino acids. So I look at this. Again, I'm going to squint because I'm kind of going, all right, there's some tiny bit of alignment. We won't know until we see these thing all folded up and we find out that all those black spikes present an antigen piece out to the world and that the body responds to that. Cool idea, but it's an idea at this stage. Uh, as well, more intriguing findings. It looks like SARS-CoV-2 spike is supported by um, a skewed TCR repertoire in patients with hyperinflammation. So they found some super antigen in yellow quote. They said, we show that SARS-CoV-2 spike contains sequence and structural motifs highly similar to those of a bacterial super antigen that may direct and may directly bind T cell receptors. Here too, they're noting SARS-CoV-2 against the cobra toxin, a bunguru toxin, a rabies virus G, so convergent evolution, the rabies virus, and the cobras have uh, sort of come together on landing on a, on a particular solution. So does HIV GP120. Again, though, if you look at this, you can see that this is highly, highly conserved across the snakes. These motifs line up really, really well. Eh, there's a lot of stuff missing and hot swapped out in SARS-CoV-2. So even though they put boxes around everything, 
I'm not sold. These amino acids are very different. And again, the structure and function of a protein is 100% dependent on the sequence of amino acids. Change one, and you might change the whole thing. Or maybe not. We don't know. Cool idea, though. And I like this idea that there's a bacterial super, super antigen motif because that could explain the hyper-inflammatory immune response. So this is actually pretty cool. Um, I'm intrigued. I'm glad I went down this particular rabbit hole because I'm learning more about that process. All right, carrying on. Uh, minutes 2829, Dr. Artis says, quote, remdesivir packaged and stored as it is delivered to hospitals comes in little glass vials, comes in a little glass vial. It's called lyophilized powder. It actually has a white to yellowish tint. Guess what color snake venom has when it's stored? So the argument here is that people have been injected with remdesivir. They get harmed. I'm with them. The conclusion is because it's a whitish, yellowish, lyophilized powder, and so is so is snake venom when it's lyophilized. They must be the same thing. Mm. All right, uh, I've lyophilized a lot of things in the lab as part of my lab piece, and lyophilization is actually the process whereby it's freeze drying. You freeze a sample solid, then you put it under a vacuum, a very, very high vacuum, like pretty much pure, perfect vacuum would be the best. And what happens is the water in there, instead of melting, actually just goes straight from a solid to a gas and it lyophilizes. So the water just leaves. It's a really cool way of preserving biological samples and tissue. If you've ever had freeze dried food, basically you've had lyophilized food. But when you have a purified substance, they all look white. They all, they all have the same look. So these are different vials of things that I just pulled. Some of these are proteins. Some of these are chemicals. They're all lyophilized. White powder, white powder, white powder, white powder. Um, so when we compare that to what I showed you way up at the beginning, these are vials of, let me go way up. There's remdesivir. It's a white powder. So the fact that it, you remdesivir is a white powder and so is snake venom when it's lyophilized, that's not even remotely proof of anything ever. So that that's 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 a strange claim. It should have been it should have been called out right away. Um, guess what color snake venom has when it's stored? All right. Um, and then he goes on to say after that, he says, quote, then to be diluted in sodium chloride or distilled water to be administered in an IV. So he's talking about remdesivir. It's diluted in sodium chloride or distilled water to be administered as an IV. Or if people are buying King Cobra venom lyophilized and they mix it in the same preparation as listed on the fact sheet for remdesivir to actually take Cobra venom or any other viper venom to inject into horses to make monoclonal antibodies. Okay, first up, when you inject anything into a horse like, like venom, you get polyclonal antibodies. So that that this error seems to just really be rippling through his entire thought process here. But um, uh, the, the, the even, come on, anybody who's a nurse or doctor, help me out here. How many things are actually diluted into saline or uh, distilled water? Like all of them, like practically all of them. I mean, that, that's just... It is the most common diluent, the, the dilutant. The, you, you, every, you, you take your, your substance, 
you put the saline water in there and you draw it back out and inject it. So, but the argument he's making is because this is a lyophilized powder, it must be snake venom. And because we see that the instructions for remdesivir uh, call for it to be rehomogenized, rehydrogenate, reconstituted, rehydrated, that's the word I was looking for, is reconstituted or rehydrated using saline and snake venom uses saline, therefore they're the same thing. Nah, it doesn't work that way. Um, So remdesivir is cobra venom is the argument he's leading up to. So the people have been specifically injected with snake venom. It's It's a very incendiary charge. Is it true? So his points he makes is, well, because remdesivir inhibits clotting, among other things that it does in people. It's not how it kills people, but it does that is one of the things. And so does king cobra venom. Therefore, they must be the same thing. Um, Actually, cobra and remdesivir, if somebody was bit by a cobra and they showed up clinically, they would show up with completely different clinical presentations than somebody who's getting injured from remdesivir. So why? Because the primary effect of cobra toxin is it's acetylcholine inhibitor. So that's a neuromuscular junction. It inhibits that. So your nerves and your muscles can't talk to each other anymore. So you end up with paralysis. You end up dying from the fact that your diaphragm is paralyzed. So you can't breathe anymore. Typically, the way you get somebody through being bit by a a paralytic like uh, cobra or something like that or crate is you put them on a ventilator. And that actually helps them because you support their breathing because they can't breathe because their muscles aren't working. So the clinical presentation of somebody bit by a cobra, besides a couple of fang marks, besides swelling and all sorts of other stuff from the other peptides and and, uh, chemicals in the snake venom, the primary thing you're worried about is that they're not breathing anymore. They have massive paralysis throughout all of their um, uh, skeletal muscles. All right. So these are the things you might see here under a cobra bite. But most notably, renal, that's the kidney, nephrotoxics, so that's kidney, kidney toxic, the the nephrom are are the little pieces within a kidney that actually uh, uh, filter the blood and create urine, right? So nephrotoxic effects have not been reported with the king cobra, not been reported. So one of the things that cobra venom does not do is mess up the kidneys. One of the things that remdesivir most notably does is it causes acute renal failure. Um, As well, it's also hepatotoxic. It it hurts the liver. So remdesivir harms the liver, harms the kidneys, doesn't cause paralysis. Cobra toxin doesn't harm the kidneys, causes paralysis. These are completely different clinical presentations. Completely different. And that should be um, very easily ascertained. So, and then he says remdesivir is lyophilized peptides and proteins of king cobra venom. It's a direct quote. Well, then test it. Just get your hands on a vial and test it. Very easy to test if there's a protein versus a chemical compound. Very easy to test the structure of the chemical compound or the sequence of the, of the amino acids in the protein. Just test it. Why not? Okay. That's, it always bothers me when people make these big claims and make a, spend more time making the claims than actually just running the test. It wouldn't be that hard to do. Okay, third claim. An enzyme found in rattlesnake venom is also found in humans suffering from COVID. 
Sounds compelling. They bring on this expert here. Uh, it, it's an interview on a TV program talking about it. Uh, the problem is, is that the, the enzyme that's detected elevated in humans um, is this PLA2-2A. This is actually, um, the, this enzyme has remarkable potency towards bacterial membranes and its induced expression during the course of infections point to a role for this enzyme in the defense of the host against invading pathogens. When your body goes into an inflammatory response, it dumps this enzyme into your blood. Artists made the claim that because they found this enzyme in humans, it must have come from snakes. Snakes have a version of this enzyme. This thing that they quote, though, that doctor down there, very clearly says that the enzymes that they find circulating inside the human body are human versions of the enzyme. It's the human version. So this SPLA2-2A is actually a human version. It's normally released in large quantities during an inflammatory response because the body thinks it's fighting an infection. If there's any bacteria around, this enzyme goes out and chews up their membranes. Okay, um, so this... Um, but he says very clearly, artist said, want to know how they got there? Speaking of these enzymes, remdesivir. So now the argument is, is that the remdesivir snake venom, snake venom has these enzymes in it. So these enzymes are being injected into humans in remdesivir. Now, a lot of people actually died from COVID without getting any remdesivir in the first place. How'd that happen? Um, so that's another hole in this particular story. All right, um, so the conclusions for this particular episode, listen, there are just too many critical scientific errors in this documentary, Watch the Water. A, not all monoclonals are anti-venom, right? Lots of lyophilized powders are white and or yellowish. Many things are diluted in saline. The clinical presentation of snake venom victims and remdesivir are completely different. Human enzymes were confused with snake versions. Basic difference between proteins and genetic sequences was mangled. On and on and on. So, from a scientific perspective, I got to give this one an F. Um, there might be some truth sort of buried in there, and I'm intrigued to look at these super antigens, but the rest of it is just a mangled mess of scientific um, conclusions and, and evidence and thinking. So, my advice here is do not take this documentary seriously. At best, it's confused. Um, I wouldn't expend any intellectual or social capital on it. I wouldn't forward it to anybody. Don't bite on this one because if you do, it might come back to bite you. At worst, its intent was to lure gullible people and make a mockery of doing your own research because this is an example of how doing your own research goes badly off the rails. Um, you can't just scratch at the surface and say, lyophilized powders are white. Remdesivir is white. Snake venom is white if it's lyophilized. They must be the same thing. Like that's, no, dig down one layer deeper. Look at other things that are lyophilized. Oh, they're all white. And eh, bad hypothesis. Let me not draw a conclusion from that. So um, that's that. Hey, listen, we have part two of this uh, episode coming up. It's, it's listen, um, now it all gets really real at this point in time. Uh, so that's what we're going to be talking about at part two. Please come by Peak Prosperity. If you like this sort of thinking, these sorts of dialogues, this is what I do. I find things out there. I do your research for you. If you come by and join Peak Prosperity, I'm your private researcher. I will spend the time, if you don't have the time, to sit down and think these things through because I think it's important to understand when we can trust something, when we can't trust something. Don't Let's not spend time pulling in um, 
in wrestling with information that's not that's not solid. There's plenty of solid information out there. Let's start there. But second of all, we are being lied to all the time. That part is true. We're being lied to by the FDA, the CDC, NIH, Fauci, all the rest. I mean, we are. And so that's all falling apart. That's unraveling. That means that now it gets now it gets real because lots of things are falling apart all at once. Our money system is about to fall apart. We're seeing this with inflation. We're going to be talking about that. But mostly the thing that's really important about our tribe is at peak prosperity is, well, it's that we don't we get to not feel crazy. Right. We don't feel alone anymore. I am so thankful to have a bunch of people who are wicked smart hanging out. We're all talking about stuff. None of us knows what the truth is, but together we're sort of figuring it out. Right. Like the proverbial seven wise men, blind wise men and an elephant. Right. We all have slightly different versions. But if you do that process right, you get pretty close to the truth over time. So that's what we do at Peak Prosperity. Hey, listen, I'm going to close this with um, a, a promo video I did for my website. Take a peek. If you want to join, please come by and join. Part two, though, we're going to be talking about some really important stuff. And um, that's all I have for you now. Hey, listen to this guy. All right. See you next time. Welcome. My name is Chris Martinson, and I am the CEO of Peak Prosperity. What is Peak Prosperity? Well, it's a website now in its 14th year of operation, and it's a place people have come to trust. It's where you go when world events are breaking that you want to understand rapidly and more completely, perhaps, than the average person. Now, here's what you'll get here. Advance warning about important world events. Rich, awesome conversations where it's actually cool. It's okay to be well-informed. Unbiased and complete information because we both know that context um, really matters and that we're perhaps treated to heavily biased, ungrounded information from most media today. Fourth, membership in a great, truly awesome community of free thinkers. You will no longer feel alone or isolated because, you know, the world is a complex and nuanced and wonderful and fascinating place, and it's okay to talk about that. Listen, if you like being early to the huge unfolding events of your life and you know that you have an important role to play in how the future unfolds, then you are hereby cordially invited to join this site. Click below for the plan that best fits your needs and circumstances and let me be the first to welcome you aboard. Welcome.